Well, folks, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 19 tonight. And there are uh, some, some papers here to follow along with. If you would prefer to do that, they're in the back there in the offering plate or next to it. And, and up front here, if you'd like to grab one if you did not earlier. Um, but we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 tonight as we continue uh, to look to God's Word to see uh, what He might teach us from it. Um, just reflecting on some of the things that we, that we always talk about when we come to the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament is to give us shadows or pictures of the gospel that will develop more fully in Christ. Okay? So we learn these stories, we, we see these different shadows of Jesus, and, and when we finally get to the New Testament, they take their full expression in Jesus. So we, we saw uh, in the past... Bread from heaven, right? How God provided for the people what they needed for the day. God gave them manna from heaven. But we see that in the New Testament, what does Jesus say of himself? He says, I am the bread of life. If you, if you eat from me, right? If you drink from this living water, we remember in the Old Testament, Moses got water from the rock. The people were able to drink for the day. But because of what Jesus does... We drink once and are forever satisfied in a spiritual sense. And so Jesus is the true and better water. He's the true and better bread. So we see all of these pictures continuing to build. And then now, at Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai. And we learn some very interesting things about God here. So why don't we just read together. Uh, Exodus 19 is another one that's, that's uh, possible to be read without... Um, just completely losing our train of thought for it, for it being so long. So let's just read Exodus chapter 19 together. And it begins this way in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. So you notice, what does Moses have to do to get to God? He has to go up, right? This is a picture of God's holiness. He's, he's other than. The Lord called to him out of the mountain. So still yet, Moses and, and God have some kind of veil in between them, as it were. Some kind of separation between them. Moses is not looking God full in the face. God calls to him out of the mountain. Moses hears his voice. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's pretty ambitious of them, knowing their track record. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do, right? We have our doubts. We have our doubts. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. So again... Picture of God's holiness. He can only come in a thick cloud, right? We can't see the glory of God in a full and unmitigated way lest we die. 
Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people uh, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. In other words, in order to have an encounter with God, there has to be some kind of cleansing that takes place first, right? You need to be consecrated, um, uh, made pure. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or even touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. It's a picture of God's holiness. He's so holy, not only can you not see Him, you can't even get close to the mountain where He is or touch it or you will die. No hand shall touch Him, but He shall be... uh, But he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So only when I say, in other words, only when God says can you approach approach him. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. This is really, this language here, and I'm I'm just, as I'm reading it again, I'm seeing it. Washing their garments is... The same language is in Revelation about washing, uh, washing your garments in order to be in the presence of God. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud in the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So again, just this lightning, shaking of the mountain, trembling before God, signs of His holiness. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in a thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, "'Go down and warn the people.'" lest they break through. And the Lord look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. In other words, not even the, the holy men are exempt from this warning. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So, that's a lot of scripture to read. So why don't we pray? Why don't we pray and ask God's wisdom? God, we ask you, as we look to the Old Testament, it seems so far away. God, and the culture seems so different. And and the picture of you seems so unlike the picture that our culture would have us to believe of God. Lord, we're tempted to believe of God as just the, uh, the, the very passive, uh, you know, grandfatherly, quiet type in the sky who really just exists for our, for our pleasure. But, but Lord, you are a God who is holy. You're separate from us. And even though we have no business being near you, you have done what is necessary to draw us in through Jesus Christ. He took the wrath that we deserved. He took the punishment and opened a way so that even though we see that the people of Israel here, God, that they, they have to set limits around, around the mountain where you exist, 
All of these barriers have been broken down for us in Christ. We can come near to the throne of God boldly, Hebrews says. And, and we can pray expecting that you will hear us because of the finished work of Jesus. Lord, help it not uh, to, to fall on us in a way that we take it lightly. Help us to see the glories of Christ in the Old Testament tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, so if you didn't pick up on the theme that seems to be all throughout Genesis, I'm, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 19, it is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And friends, this is why the holiness of God is important. Because if we don't get a sense, if we don't get a sense for how we have no business being near God, then what Jesus did for us will seem very small. What Jesus did for us will not, it'll be kind of, eh, okay. Jesus just kind of paid, paid for our sins, and I guess that's the end of it. But if we get a picture of, of, the, of the deep and, and abiding holiness of God, we will see just how much Jesus really did in order to make us right. So this is why we have to get a picture of this. The holiness of God, as R.C. Sproul has, has commented, is perhaps the most uh, neglected but yet most necessary attribute of God for us to understand if we are to have any thankfulness to Jesus for what he's done on the cross. Uh, and I would commend a book to you. I'm always commending a book to you. If you were to read all the books that I commended to you, I guess you'd stay pretty busy. But maybe, uh, maybe this one sounds good to you. It's called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It's a modern classic. R.C. just died just a couple of years ago. I suppose time gets away from me, but I guess it was 2017 or... 18 or 19, but it's a great teacher of God's Word. And he wrote that book called The Holiness of God. But this attribute is key to understanding not only who God is, but who we are. What kind of condition are we in? Uh, God demonstrates His love for His, for His people by creating a covenant with them. By creating a covenant with them, God has made a way for Old Testament Israel to relate to God. Before Christ, God still wants to draw near His people. And so He's made a way through, through this covenant. And so, let's look under the heading here, the holiness of God. Without a deep understanding of the holiness of God, we will never see Him rightly. We will also never really kind of get a grasp of or assess our lost condition before Him. In other words... Sometimes I feel like the gospel is presented as if we're already pretty good people that God would otherwise desire to have on his team. We just need Jesus to kind of give us a little, you know, just a little bump. Give us a little boost over the, over the hurdle. But really, God's holiness is so high and so far beyond anything that we could ever attain to, we're the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain who are told, you can't even, I'm going to set up some fences so that you don't even get close to touching the part of the mountain that you ought not touch because it's near where the presence of God is. Right? We are those people. We are so far from Him, so needy, that what Jesus did isn't give us a boost. Jesus didn't kind of get us over the hump. He did CPR on a, on a dead patient. He makes dead people alive, people who have no hope of getting over the hurdle. Um, let's see, I got to preaching there, and I lost my place. Um, 
So God is so vastly other than us and so vastly perfect and righteous that we should not even be able to have a relationship with Him. It's important to note a couple of things. He does not owe us a relationship with Him. God does not owe us a relationship with Him. He doesn't owe anyone salvation. The fact that He grants salvation to anyone is, is, is a wonder of His glory. His holiness is what was offended by our sin. So when we, this, this creature that he created out of the dust, decided to, to go their own way, to, to use their free will and rebel against God, it was God's holiness that was offended by our sin. And that's what put the separation between us and God because nothing unholy can exist in the presence of God. Uh, it says here in verse 3, Moses, look at this language about the holiness. Moses went up to God. Right? He, had to, he had to go somewhere. Who, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Is it not him who has purified himself? Right? The Lord called to him out of the mountain. So there, there again. And then verse 9, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. God is still having to mediate his presence. Like there's some kind of in-between. There's, there's some kind of veil in between God and his people still because of his holiness. He tells the people in verse 10, Go to the people and consecrate them today. This is the same picture at the temple. The moment you walk into the temple where the, the holy of holies, at the very innermost part of the temple is where God's presence is supposed to be. The first thing you come to when you begin to walk into those outer courts is this bowl, as I've said before, called the lava. It's this bowl where you would, there would be water there and you would symbolically take it and wash because you're reminding yourself that to go any further, I must be clean. I must be clean. Uh, is it verse 12? It talks about setting the limits. You shall set, set limits. Anyone who, who breaks out, anyone who gets too close, he shall not live. In verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This is the grandeur and the glory of God being displayed in creation. Creation is, God's own creation is reacting to His presence being near. Uh, verse 21, Go down and warn the people. So, Here's how we can apply these, these things. All of this language, it just paints a picture vividly of, of the holiness of God. It helps us push back against the assumptions of our age. Right? If, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we're tempted to think of God the way that television thinks of God. Right? We're tempted to have like the Hallmark, and I love my Hallmark movies, I right? I give my Hallmark TV shows a really bad name, but Whitney's got me hooked in on one called, called When Calls the Heart. I need to edit this out of the video so that there's no evidence that I like the Hallmark channel. But, you know, and it comes on every Sunday night, and tonight's the finale. <laughs> but we're tempted to, to think of God in this very generic kind of, kind of uh, I don't know, sanitized way. But the God that we see here in the Old Testament is Yahweh. And we have to push back against the assumptions of our culture, the assumption of our age. He's just our friend. He's just our guide on the side. He's not all that serious. He exists primarily for us. He makes no demands. God would never do that, our culture tells us. But, but this picture, this picture wrecks us. It wakes us from the slumber of, of thinking about God wrongly. When we get a sense of the holiness of God, we can see how broken and helpless we are. And then guess what the good news is? When we get a picture of how broken and helpless we are, that's when we reach out for Him. This is necessary. Seeing God this way is necessary to responding to Him in the gospel.
We must see Him this way. Listen to how Isaiah speaks of the holiness of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. There's language of holiness again. You see that? And the train of His robe filled the temple. In in this ancient Near East, a king was known by how long the train of his robe was. That's how much glory he had, right? Well, this God, the train of His robe, fills the temple. Right, The very building that is supposed to show you where His presence is, it's full of the train of His robe. It can't even contain the symbol of His glory. And above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Does that sound like a prophecy fulfilled there? Remember? Habakkuk 2.14 And the knowledge of His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the foundations of the threshold shook. So here in Isaiah, things are shaking there too, right? God's glory seems to make things shake. And the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. That's the appropriate response. That's the appropriate response to seeing God as He is. You say, I, woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Many of us don't have a problem with that second part. Woe is me, I dwell among a bunch of sinners. right? But Isaiah says, woe is me, because I am one. I am a man of unclean lips. And I, yes, I dwell in, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You see what has to happen there. Something painful has to happen for sin to be taken care of. And we know that our sins have been taken care of in Christ when he endured the pain that we deserved on the cross. Beautiful pictures. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. How today, friends, how today can we have clean hands? And a pure heart. Our hands need to be cleaned and our hearts need to be purified only by the blood of Jesus. That's how we can ascend the hill of the Lord today. Here's a word of application. If you look on the back, I've got an interesting little story that I can't take credit for, but I learned this. Severe combined immunodeficiencies, SCID, is a disease that renders its patients completely unable or mostly unable perhaps to tolerate any kind of germ or infection. There's a young man named David Vetter. He only lived a few years there from 71 to 84. He lived with it. He was, he was dubbed the bubble boy uh, because he lived in a protective sterile, uh, sterile chamber. But he, uh, I guess, as, as perhaps a, an attempt at treating his condition, he received a bone marrow transplant from his sister. There was just a problem. There was some kind of dormant virus in her cells that, that she was able to tolerate, but he was not. He developed cancer due to this that, that it couldn't manage. And, and sadly, he, he succumbed to that, to that disease. 
after this procedure. Much like this disease, SCID, makes it impossible to tolerate infections, God, because of His holiness, can't tolerate sin. But God's condition, it isn't a disease, and it isn't a danger to God. God's character is a danger to us because He can't tolerate sin in His presence, and friends, we're full of it. We're full of sin. And so, what should we do? Well, there's nothing we can do, but thankfully, God Himself has done it all to make access to Him possible through the blood of the cross. Let's look at the covenant. There is a covenant here between God and His people. We see this in in Exodus chapter 19. God tells the people, consecrate yourselves. I'm about to set up a covenant. In other words, I'm about to set up a bridge between us and you so that we can have relationship together. Even in light of God's holiness, even in light of the fact that He dwells in unapproachable light, there's no reason we should have any business near Him. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 6.16, He dwells in unapproachable light. God demonstrates His love toward us by condescending. That just means coming down. Condescending to us. Here in Exodus, He does it by making a covenant with His people. He makes it possible for them to have a relationship even in a broken way. And in the New Testament, how do we have a relationship with Jesus? Through the new covenant, established by Jesus' blood. The old covenant was just a shadow. It was just a down payment on what Jesus was going to do. And what Jesus did was open the way fully. How do we know this? Well, there's a beautiful picture of it. Remember what happened when Jesus gave up His last breath and the sky turned black? And what happened in the middle of the temple? The veil was torn. And this veil, I believe, was something like two to three feet thick. It's a lot of fabric, right? A lot of fabric. This veil that was supposed to be between the, the Holy of Holies and, the, and then the, the holy place outside of that where God was supposed to dwell, this veil was rent in two from top to bottom as a symbol that the way has now been opened. Anyone who by faith will lay hold of what Jesus has done can go in now to the Holy of Holies where we have no business going because of God's holiness and our sin. There's some really uh, nerdy information there if you'd like to read up on some suzerain vassal treaties, but this is basically what was going on there. If you'd like to read on that, you can, but for some reason I feel like I'm... uh, I'm tarrying here, so why don't we move on to the Christ connection? Because after all, we've got to get to Jesus. Got to get to the cross somehow. So let's look at the Christ connection. It's strong here, by the way. I think it's very strong. The Old Testament shadows of New Testament realities are very clear here, I think. Let's look. He tells the people there to be a kingdom of priests, right? There to be a kingdom, a whole nation of priests. Well, that's an interesting phrase. What does a priest do? What does a priest do? A priest stands in between God and people. The priest does all the sacrifices, right? So that the unholy people can have some kind of relationship with the holy God. So a priest is kind of like an intermediary. It's a bridge, a go-between. And God tells the people of Israel that they are to be a kingdom of priests. They're to be a nation of priests. So here, Moses is kind of presented as this 
as his priest. Moses is a shadow that looks toward Jesus. Moses stands between the sinful people at the bottom of the mountain and the holy God up at the top of the mountain. Right? And he's taking messages in between them, telling them how they are to relate to one another, how the people are to relate to the holy God. Moses is like a priest figure here. What could he be pointing toward? He's pointing toward Jesus. Moses kind of foreshadows Jesus and what Jesus will do. God is holy. We are sinful. We need protection. We will surely die if it's not for the quick action of a priest on our behalf. Just as Moses protected the Israelites, he he set up a a barrier. He kept them from from enduring the wrath of God against them that was going to break out against them. Just as Moses protected the Israelites before a holy God, so Jesus protects us by standing in between us, by taking the wrath that we deserved. Moses is a shadow. Jesus Christ is the reality. Moses is a priest figure. Jesus is the true and better priest. He stands in between us and God the Father. Jesus comes with a better covenant. While the old covenant was one of works, if you notice here, Look at verse 5, Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, if... That, that word, I know it's only two letters. That's a huge, huge word. If, right? Listen to this. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. I'm supplying the word then right there. If you'll do this, you will be my treasured possession. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The old covenant was was a covenant of works. It was one that had stipulations. If you do this, then I will do that. The new covenant, though, is one of grace. Jesus has fulfilled fully what we needed in order to be acceptable to God. Now... This is, this is actually complicated, and I may have just spoken in a way that's confusing. Because still, even though in the Old Testament, even though the people are often sinful and they often fail, God is still there holding them, right? God is still faithful, even when the Israelites are faithless. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, Jesus has fulfilled all of the demands that we could never fulfill. Everything that we needed to do perfectly in order to be acceptable into God's presence, Jesus, in His perfect life, He fulfilled those. He, he like stored up a, a, a bank account of, of credit that's, that's infinite that we get to draw from. We get to draw from the, the bank account, as it were, of, of His good works. But then there's also a kind of a mission that comes behind this. Because how are we today, if the Old Testament Israel was to be a kingdom of priests... Is there something that the church should be today in our culture? Clearly, we're not priests, are we? But is there a way that we, in a sense, stand in between people and God? Let's, let's look at 1 Peter 2.9. See what kind of language Peter uses here. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's talking to the church in the New Testament. This isn't Old Testament Israel anymore. He's saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, that, in other words, so that, or for this purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what is the purpose of God's giving us mercy? What is the purpose of God's calling us out? What is the purpose of God's putting us into a local church? What is the purpose of God's creating a people out of us? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him. So that we can tell others who He is and what He's like so that they too can have a relationship with Him. So we're not priests in the Old Testament sense, but still, God intends for His people to be a kind of priesthood standing in between others and a holy God that they will one day meet. So friends, we take this very seriously so that we might be before God a holy nation, a royal priesthood, proclaiming who God is to a lost and dying world so that they can be called, like we were, like we were one day, and perhaps you remember that day, so that they can be called to out of darkness and into marvelous light. Friends, I pray that we would take that gospel message, that we would do our service as being a kind of priest to tell others about the God who is loving and who desires to make covenant with them and to save them from their sins, to protect them from the wrath uh, and the judgment that is coming. So why don't we pray? We're going to pray, and then we're going to have a short time of reflection and response. Our folks are going to uh, um, play for us, and perhaps we'll sing a hymn. I'm just going to be here on this front pew, of course, just kind of taking the same posture as you. And uh, if the Lord requires something of you tonight, I pray that you would respond in whatever way is appropriate for you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for giving us a clear word in the Old and New Testaments. Lord, help us not to have any small thoughts about your word. Help us not to believe that the Old Testament, that's just a bunch of really far and away distant stuff that we could never possibly grasp. But Lord, you by your spirit, you illuminate it and you make it come alive. And we see in the Old Testament shadows of what Jesus has has developed and, and what Jesus became in a more full way. And so God, I pray that we would be able to worship you as we read in the Old Testament. We would be able to worship you as we read in the New Testament what you have done to make sinners right with you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.